Welcome to the Report Card with Nat Malkus, where we evaluate efforts to improve the lives of families, schools, and students. If you're anything like me, you remember high school as a focused pursuit of your passions. I recall courses taught according to my own keen interests, with instructors who stressed the practical applications of physics. They inspired me to dig into my passion for 11th grade English and daily focused me on the driving purpose of pre-calculus to prepare myself for calculus. Or maybe I'm not quite remembering this clearly at all. It seems actually like there may be a good bit of following directions, assigned essays, and note-taking. But why is this latter image, dominated by teacher-directed work and often surface learning, also common across American schools today and, well, a few years ago when I was in high school? I mean, why aren't schools set up to be more engaging? And why isn't there more deeper learning going on? Today, I brought Jal Mehta, professor of education at Harvard University, who went in search of deeper learning in schools across America with his co-author, Sarah Fine. And after hundreds of interviews and research in 30 schools, they looked to find classrooms where deeper learning was taking place. And as he'll tell you, it wasn't an easy search, but it culminated in their book, In Search of Deeper Learning, The Quest to Remake the American High School. Jal's book describes those classrooms that did display deeper learning and the features that made them so distinctive. Jal makes a compelling case, and something of a radical case, to restructure schools for deeper learning, and we're glad to have him on the podcast. Jal, welcome. Thanks, Nat. So before we get into the book, let me do a little table setting here. This is sort of a big picture question that academics should love to take a big swing at. What is the chief end of high school? I think that students should leave high school equipped to take on the challenges of the modern world, the complexities that come with that. So when we talk about deeper learning in our book, like why is it important that students learn more the first way that you fictitiously described than the second way, the way that they actually learned? Because to do the kind of learning that you were emphasizing the first way, the kind of learning where you think critically, develop interpretations, work with others, get connected to things that you care about, Those are the kinds of skills that you'll need in the world. Those are the kinds of skills that you'll need at almost any middle-class job. Those are the kind of skills that you'll need civically to tell the difference between real news, fake news, take on issues of global warming, poverty, inequality, etc. It's a complicated world out there. You don't learn everything you need for the world in school, but it would be nice if school was at least aligned to try to prepare you for the kinds of things that you're going to have to face when you get there. I should put a rejoinder on my introduction. My mother was my 11th grade English teacher, so I should probably just do a little bit of backtracking here. I actually loved high school, especially 8th grade English. Sorry, mom. Okay, so talk to me about this study. This was a long-term study, long in the making. You started this, what, eight years ago? Yes. We started the study in 2010-11. At the time, it was called Good Schools Beyond Test Scores. And so it was sort of in the middle of the No Child Left Behind era or the towards the end of the No Child Left Behind era, as it turned out. And all anybody was interested in was whether this practice or that practice could raise reading or math scores by a little bit. And we thought there must be more to what makes for, for a good school than that. And so we set out to look at a diversity of different kinds of schools, mostly public schools, but including both charters and traditional publics. Mostly schools that served high poverty or working class students, but also some schools that served 
suburban, upper middle class students. And we were just trying to get a sort of diversity of schools out there. And we were also looking for schools that were recommended as breaking the mold in some way. So we didn't want to kind of retell the depressing story that's been out there about high schools for the generations. We wanted instead to kind of find some really awesome outlier schools, figure out what their secret sauce was, write about that secret sauce, and then share it with the world in the hopes of inspiring them. So that's kind of where we started. And this secret sauce, when you found it, you'd hoped would be what you call deeper learning. And not everybody knows what deeper learning is. So let's start there. How would you explain what deeper learning is to, you know, a layperson? Sure. I mean, I think when you go deeper on any issue, it means sort of getting under the surface, moving from seeing the symptoms or surface level features to understanding the deeper structures. So if we were talking about a a biological cell, for example, a shallow understanding would be able to label the parts of the cell. A deeper understanding would be to understand how the parts of the cell work with each other. If you removed a part of the cell, what would happen? That's sort of like at a most basic level, the difference between shallow and deeper learning. If you've ever listened to the show Car Talk, which is a show where people call in and they describe the problems with their cars. Like, you know, I was driving and then it made this noise. And then you're talking to these guys who like have a very like working class affect, but like have deep knowledge of cars. And they're like, does it happen more when it rains? Does it happen more when it's less than 50 degrees out? Does it happen more when you suddenly stop? You're kind of watching a conversation between someone who can see the surface and someone who understands the deeper structure. So I think that's, sort of deeper learning in a nutshell. Okay, so you talk about three parts to this deeper learning, and I'd love for you to just take them one at a time. Identity, mastery, and creativity. So mastery is developing significant knowledge and skill in a domain. Identity is becoming connected to a domain, like becoming someone who sees themselves as someone who does that kind of work, whatever it might be. And then creativity is not just kind of taking in knowledge, but also making knowledge. And we kind of came to this definition because as we were visiting these schools across the ideological spectrum, we found some schools where, you know, where very traditional schools Kids seem to be learning some things. I'm not sure how deep the things they were learning were, but, you know, they were pretty miserable, eat your broccoli kind of environments. And then we went to some other schools on the sort of progressive end where there were lots of opportunities for creativity and students told us the school feels like family and so forth. But like we couldn't see any evidence in their work that there was sort of significant development of knowledge and skill. Whereas when we pulled out domains where students felt like they had acquired and through the work that the students did, we could see that they had acquired kind of a deeper understanding, like the one I was just describing, generally it seemed to bring these virtues together, that like the identity was sort of like the fuel, the motivation that like got them interested in learning on it and wanting to work on it enough to like get to the deeper level. So if it's the biological cell, like why do I care about like how the biological cell works? Well, maybe if I'm researching an infectious disease or maybe if my, you know, aunt has a disease that I care about, then all of a sudden like I'm more interested in it and I'm starting to see myself as someone who understands something scientifically or medically and so forth. And then the creativity it's hard to really 
understand something deeply without at least trying to sort of do something in the domain. So it's like one thing to like go to an art appreciation class. It's another thing to make a painting. But if you're going to make a really good painting, you probably need to know something about the history of art and you need to know some technique and so on and so forth. So it's sort of going back and forth across these dimensions that we thought led to really powerful deep learning trajectories. So you went and in a long and exhaustive quest for deep learning, how rare is it? Well, the bad news is the schools that we had picked as schools often featured a lot of worksheets, a lot of low-level cognitive tasks, things that I think almost no one would characterize as deep learning. So one lesson for your listeners is next time you read about like X or Y innovative school, just look a little under the cover before you sort of believe the headline. The good news is that if we stapled ourselves to a back of a kid and just followed that kid through their day, which is generally how we started our research at any given school, usually we would find one, sometimes two spaces that were intellectually lively, challenging, engaging, passionate spaces. Like I can remember very clearly one day we were at a history class and very dull history class. Students were not paying attention. They were talking about their weekends. It was a pretty miserable class. And then the bell rang and we followed the same kids across the hallway to another class, which was a chemistry class. And the same kids like started on their do now. We're like, mister, you need to put on some goggles if you're going to be in this class. This is the experiment we're doing. This is why we're doing it. This is what's interesting about it. So bad news, schools as a whole not organized to do this. Good news, lots and lots of individual classrooms out there. The Gates Measures of Effective Teaching Study, which is the largest ever videotaped study of classrooms, put the figure of the classrooms they observed where teachers were doing what they called ambitious instruction, which is fairly similar to what I'm talking about at one in five. And we also saw about one in five as we trailed kids through these days. So I would say about one in five. So that's sort of tough if you come at it from the student's perspective. When you say, okay, I got six periods today and one should be good. That's tough. Let me ask about this concept, the grammar of schooling. It's not your concept. It's an older one, but it's a great way to sort of set up how the way we organize schools, how the way, you know, standard operating procedures work, sort of funnel us toward a particular way of learning. So can you just reprise for the audience? What's the grammar of schooling? Yeah. So Larry Cuban and David Tyek came up with this very evocative phrase, the grammar of schooling, historians at Stanford. Basically, their idea is that there's some kind of core aspects of schools that we just sort of think of as like the basics of schooling. And even as we try to reform things, we don't really change them. And so on their list were things like age-graded schooling. So we divide students by age, separation of subjects into disciplines as opposed to interdisciplinary learning, the time of blocks, that all the blocks are like roughly the same length. I think we could say like sorting and tracking as part of the grammar of schooling, that students are sort of sorted by perceived ability levels into different groups. And so all of those things, if we sort of stepped back, one of the pieces of data we cite in the book comes from the student Gallup poll, and it shows that about 75% of fifth graders report being engaged in school, and by ninth grade, by 11th grade, it's down to 32%. So essentially, like the longer students have been in these taxpayer-funded institutions, which we hope will make things better for them, the more they are telling us that they don't want to be there. And I think if you stepped back, a big reason for it is 
you know, babies come into the world really interested in the world. And then we develop these things called subjects, like someone in the state says, like, this is what you need to know about biology. And then the districts make some decisions and the principal makes some decisions and the teacher makes some decisions. And then like, that's what's happening in biology at like 10 o'clock on Thursday morning. The student said, like, I never signed up for this. All the sort of potential things that might be interesting to the student about like the biological world aren't on offer. So we sort of bubble wrap everything. And then we're like, how come they're not interested and engaged? Like, how could we make them more interested and engaged? And so I think a big part of that lies in the grammar of schooling. Part of this, it seems to me, and I'll just take an aside. The book is a long book, but it's very readable. It moves you through and there's a lot of evidence that you've been in schools that you are showing, you know, sort of this is what it looks like on the ground. So that makes it very enjoyable. But when you sort of step back and sort of think about this grammar of schooling, a lot of it makes sense as sort of like a backwards mapping of where we want kids to get to, right? I mean, what do we want high schoolers to know? Well, we have a lot of content. We have that content sort of broken it down into subjects and skills, and we break them out by year. That's a pretty particular view of how schools are supposed to work. And the organization seems to sort of flow from that. And that sort of translates into that grammar of schooling. Am I getting this right? Yes. I mean, I think you might say schools were set up to be efficient at processing students, but not necessarily aligned with what we know about learning. So the system we have, well, allows parents to go to work and give students a place to go, which is safe, mostly. And it reliably sort students, sends some students on to top colleges and other students not, gives every student a sort of grade at each point along the way. It's like, in one sense, it's like a very efficient system. But in another sense, it's just not very well aligned with what we know about learning. Learning generally is about people taking all of the schema they have in their head. Like, let's say there's like a tree of knowledge in their head, then there's a tree of knowledge in the world. And the teacher's job is to sort of connect those two things in an interesting way. And that doesn't work in as sort of predictable a structure as the sort of efficiency-oriented structure we have. Now, in the book, We talk a lot about electives and extracurriculars, and maybe we're coming to this, but like we did a deep dive on a high school theater production, for example, and that, you know, just it has a very different grammar, you know, like it's mixed age, so students can learn from older students as opposed to themselves. A lot of it is student-led, so there's departments and students are running different departments. We talk a lot about the whole game, which is a concept from my colleague, David Perkins. David Perkins says, like, when you learn to play baseball, you don't spend a year batting and a year throwing and a year catching and say, like, when you get to graduate school, you can actually, like, play a full game of baseball. You got little seven-year-olds, like, playing the whole game of baseball from the start. It doesn't mean you don't practice. Like, you practice your scales, you practice your grounders, you practice your layups, you practice the parts, but you can see the relationship between the parts and the whole, and the whole is what really gives it the kind of motivating energy. Whereas in school, that logic that you just laid out, there's a lot of emphasis on the parts, but very little in terms of a case as to like, how do these parts fit together? And like, why would anyone like want to be part of this enterprise? That's the ubiquitous question. Why are we studying this? Which often kids don't have an answer to, and we would want them to be able to see that answer. I I understand that. So you took a deep dive in the book in four schools and... Each one has deeper learning exemplified within it. And I don't think any of them are held out as sort of, you know, the Shangri-La that we're all working towards. But I'm interested to go through them quickly and just give us an introduction to it. 
sort of their strengths and weaknesses. But let me put it a little bit differently. I'm interested in sort of their roads to deeper learning and also the trade-offs that you sort of found in the different schools. So can we start off with Dewey High? Sure. So Dewey High is a project-based school, which really intentionally is trying to break a lot of those elements of the grammar of schooling that I just set up. So teachers work in teams across disciplines. So they might have, you know, you might have like a math teacher and an art teacher holding the same 40 kids for two hours rather than like, you know, 20 kids with one and 20 kids with the other. And so some days they might be doing some all math and other days all art and some days like art infused math, something like that. A lot of trust of the teachers, a lot of opportunity for teachers to learn from one another. So the strengths were kids could answer what we're doing and why, like they made a field guide of the local bay, which they sell in bookstores in the city where it was. They wrote a book called Economics Illustrated, which where one page was a description of an economics concept and one page was a picture of that concept, which President Clinton said was one of the best economics books and certainly one of the most understandable economics books he had ever read. So the strengths were kids were really invested in what they were learning and they could think across disciplines. The weaknesses were some of the students who came in with weaker basic skills, which tended to be their poor students and students of color, didn't necessarily always get those skills sort of remedied and built up within this environment. And so we studied these schools for like six or seven years. So we wrote most of our portrait based on what we saw the first time. And then we went back towards the end and they were pretty actively sort of working on this in the latter part of our study. Trying to shore up some of the things that they were struggling with earlier. Okay. And to go to a very different school, and it's worth noting that none of the schools are sort of, you know, these elite vaunted institutions that are screening kids and so forth. Certainly not the no excuses high, right? So no excuses high, 90% students on free or reduced price lunch, 90%, 95, 98% students of color, pretty much like the mirror image of Dewey High. So like... Lots of very careful backward mapping towards AP exams, lots of really careful monitoring of how students were doing with respect to particular skills and subskills, lots of very careful mentoring of the teachers and development of a common curriculum to ensure that students could do those things. And so the pros of that were pretty impressive. We knew that some of our readers would be pretty skeptical of No Excuses Schools. So we put in some long excerpts of the book in the book of just sort of like basically just transcripts of what happened in a few classes. Yeah, it's fascinating. Students like, you know, they could have a really you know, complicated discussion about the stickleback fish and the conditions under which it might have evolved into something else, so forth. So fluency with academic knowledge in a way that it would be unexpected, I would say, given the challenges that the students were dealing with. Downside, students said, like, just so you know, no one wants to be here. That's tough to hear. (laughs) Yeah. And then the students, because of their record, a lot of these students went on to colleges, including some of the more highly selective ones, and they really struggled there with the more open-ended environments. They sort of every minute of their day had been on sort of countdown timers in high school, and there was a homework bin when they got in in the morning to make sure they turned in their homework and they didn't do their homework during the day. And then, you know, you go to a college campus and you got three or four classes a week that meet at two o'clock in the afternoon and no one's watching your study habits and stuff. And so this network was really trying to think about, like, how do we help students transition to this more open-ended, agency-centered environment? 
And so they did some things to try to help students, but our argument in the chapter was they were really kind of stuck because all of the systems and structures that they'd created to achieve what they had achieved were sort of built on control and micromanagement. And now like the major challenge they were confronting is that like they needed the students to be sort of agentic, self-managing people. And so they could like add like electives, like they added an elective in African-American history, for example, to try to get students more interested in their reading. And that was successful. But the sort of fundamental question of like, could we produce agentic learners? It was really hard to figure out how to do that without undoing all the structures that had led to their success. So, sure. Yeah, they had a lot of things in place. They were working yeah. and they were loath to take those apart to try and improve. What about the next high school, IB High or International Baccalaureate High? So IB High was a middle-class school. A lot of international baccalaureate is really for elite kids. So these weren't like the highest of the high poverty kids, but they also weren't kids of doctors and lawyers. There was right. just a lot of like, you know, middle-class kids. And, you know, we had a lot of positive things to say about IB as a sort of balance point between Dewey High and No Excuses High and that, you know, IB does give you some external standards and ways of sort of verifying whether the work is at a sufficiently rigorous level. But at the same time, there's flexibility in teaching. There's opportunities for students to define some of their work. So like if your listeners, if their students have taken an AP history test, like, yes, there are a few essays. Yes, there are DBQs. But like, basically, it's about like, just knowing a lot of facts about American history. Whereas in IB, you have to write like a 4,000 word essay on some aspect of history. And that essay gets judged by external examiners on criteria like use of evidence, ability to marshal an argument, you know, certain sort of historiography criteria. And so there, the sort of external system is, from our perspective, just more supportive of deeper learning. And interestingly, both Dewey High and No Excuses High like had explored IB as like a potential model that might meet some of their shortcomings. So it's an interesting model that IB is like by far the weaker cousin of the AP IB pairing. And I think in our view, it deserves a sort of much wider airing. And the last school, Attainment High. Attainment High is a suburban school in a district affluent district where a lot of parents paid a lot of money to be able to send their kids to this school. 16% students of color, about 20% free and reduced price lunch. So mostly affluent school, but you know, there's 2000 students. So if 20% of them are free and reduced price lunch, there are 500 poor students in this school. The main story we tell there is about the contrast between performance and learning. So Carol Dweck has this distinction between when you're doing a task for learning's sake, it's more intrinsically motivated, you're okay with making mistakes because mistakes are part of learning. And when you have a performance mindset, you're sort of trying to hide your mistakes and just sort of do what the exam or credential is asking for you. And so Carol Dweck is sort of big in the education world these days. And so all over the walls, there were these posters, which said, like, your next mistake is your first opportunity for learning. So we said, learning mindset on the walls, performance mindset in the water, because no one actually could see. And so the result at this school was, you know, a lot of exhausted students, a lot of students trying to read the teachers for what the right answer would be. Teachers were frustrated by this because they said these students are perfectly capable of 
being intellectually interested in the things we're asking them to do, but they're just looking at us as sort of gatekeepers who are holding credentials that they need. And then the student said, well, the teachers say that they're asking us open-ended questions, but really they know what answers they want. And so like, we should give it to them if we want to move on to the next stage. We kind of wondered whether both students and teachers essentially had been conscripted into a game that neither one really wanted to be playing, a game that was set by the colleges and the parents, and that that, that game was not really the game that, that either wanted to play. Okay, so all these schools had bright spots of deeper learning in them, and they all faced challenges. Broadly speaking, I mean, you can talk about this as sort of, well, there are systems in the way we set up schools that make these things that are hard. There are ways we train teachers and just the water that teachers are drinking that just brings them along in these ways. But I don't think that people who set up schools start them out by saying, let's really work on rote facts and not on deeper learning. And teachers don't come out of teacher's college saying, you know, I really want kids to know everything about the periodic table of elements. No, you know, they want them to understand. So where do you think is the the falling down of the system? Well, first off, I think that what you just said is a great question and a big part of what we're trying to do with the book, which is to provoke people to step back and think about what do we really want this enterprise to be about? And is the way that we've organized our curriculum, our money, our time, our subjects, is that consistent with what we're really hoping for from this enterprise? Because I think a lot of it is just sort of history and inertia. Like this is the way that schools were built and they continue to have those patterns, not because anybody really wants them to, but that's just the way that they are. And so I think you know, districts or schools that are trying to change this, one thing that they do is they start with this thing called Portrait of a Graduate, where they bring together parents and students and community members and business groups. And they say like, okay, when people like finish this institution, like what set of skills, knowledge and disposition do we really want them to have? And no one ever says like, you know, understand the details of mitochondria. People say things like, critical thinking, collaboration, civic participation, empathy, like these kinds of big things that you would hope for for your own kids. And so I think once you step back and start to have that conversation, then you can start to revisit a lot of the structural things that stand in our way. I mean, I think one of the biggest things is, at least in high schools, is breadth versus depth. So like one big trade-off we could make is ask students to know fewer things and give them more opportunity to explore those things in more depth. British Columbia has moved in this direction. And as a province, they've tried to specify five big pieces of knowledge and five skills that they want students to have in each grade, in each subject matter. And that seems reasonable. Like, because, I mean, if we gave all of us a quiz on the things that we once knew in high school, like, we would not do that well on the quiz. So let's focus on the big memorable things that might actually stick with people. And then, you know, if you, if you go to five, you know, there's nine months in the school year. So that's like, you know, almost two months to do each thing. And that should be enough time to really sort of explore all the facets of it. There was one teacher in our study, an English teacher, he was doing a history unit and they'd started with the founding fathers and some of the students, many of the students were black and Latino asked about, 
you know, the founding fathers and slavery and like, what did it mean for the nation to be founded by people who themselves held slaves? And he said, you know, earlier in my career, I would have just sort of skated over that and said, like, we don't really have time for that. We need to move to the next thing. And he's like, now I'm more experienced. I'm like, okay, like students are really interested in this. And the question of like, you know, we can use their interest in this to sort of explore like the racial stain of the nation from the beginning to the present. And so like he built in some space to do like three weeks on the founding fathers in slavery. And then they carried that theme through the rest of the year. And that seems like the kind of teacher you would want your kid to have. So I see the the appeal to that. And it makes me sort of think about my college history classes, which we grappled with particular things. But I hear some alarm bells in the back of my mind saying, yeah, but what's the opportunity cost of going deep on these things? What well, must be spread to some degree. So two questions here that I'll let you take however order you want. Is there some sacrifice of breadth when you go deep? And how do you, when you're doing deeper learning in either sort of the project-based modes or going deep on one topic over several weeks, how do you then make sure that the mastery element sort of comes alongside these things? So I would never favor a curriculum that was pure depth. When I went to college, there was this theory that, you know, if you taught someone how to understand a historical event, then they could then in turn understand all other historical events. And so we had people walking around our college who knew a lot about William of Orange, for example, because that's what the professor who was teaching this depth-oriented class, that was his, where his research was, but didn't know anything about like the Renaissance or anything that happened after William of Orange and so forth. And that seemed problematic in the college context and would be really problematic in the high school context. Like people need some sense of the trajectory of human history and its civilization. At the same time, so that's one extreme. Then the other extreme is what we saw in a lot of ninth grade world history, which in a lot of places runs from like ancient Mesopotamia up till at least the French Revolution, if not later. So that's like- In nine months. In nine nine months. That's like 18 centuries in nine months. So that's 200 years a month. And so kids just like are just like spouting like the names of all of these dynasties and so on and so forth. And like they can't remember anything. So like wouldn't a compromise be like what if the essential question was something like why do civilizations rise and fall? Under that question, you could consider economics, politics, culture, society. You could look at democracies, autocracies, etc. And let's say that you picked, you know, five civilizations across the course of history to examine those questions through. You know, that would still, you could keep the Greeks and the Romans, you could include some non-Western history. There could be some of that kind of balance and breadth, but students might start to think, like they'd really have an opportunity to think about each of those things and they get to think about them in discussion with the other ones. Maybe we could end, maybe the whole, you know, year could end with like, you know, where is America in the sort of current civilizational you know, arc. Or maybe you could start the year with that to like get people interested in it and then take them through it and then come back to it at the end. There's just like a zillion possibilities for skilled folks, but I think some balance is key. So the book is fascinating. It's definitely asking for some serious rethinking of how schooling works and how to reorient teacher practice, the way we set up schools, the way teachers and students interact for deeper learning. One of the questions that I came away wondering, is deeper learning a thing or is it a direction? In other words, it's often laid out and I've seen it in other places where it's this thing that we should aspire to and, 
you know, there's a clear picture of what it should be in the classroom. But it also appears to me that, you know, we see this sometimes in classes. We see it in extracurriculars in ways that are really powerful. So is it better to think about this as a direction with which schools should be moving toward or sort of a place where you want to arrive? That's a great question. And I think it's much more the direction than the thing. When I do workshops and people come up to me afterwards and they're like, oh, you like discovered deeper learning, like tell me what it is and how I can do it. That betrays a certain kind of naivete, I think. Whereas when teachers come up to me afterwards and are like, this is interesting. I think it connects to work that I've done previously around teaching for understanding or constructivism or apprenticeship learning. How is this different? I think, oh, like we could have a real conversation. So I think one thing to remember is that there are a a lot of different ways one could deepen instruction, like a Socratic seminar can be deep learning as much as a project. A kid can be sitting by himself puzzling through a really complicated math problem, and that can be deeper learning. So I would think of it more like a direction or an umbrella under which a lot of more specific pedagogical modes can emerge. Well, it's a fascinating book. And Jal, thanks for coming on The Report Card to talk about it. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to The Report Card with Nat Malkus. And special thanks to Jal Mehta for joining the podcast. The producers of this episode include Matt Rice, Sophia Gallo, Tyler Hoover, and Gage Hurley of Liquid Media. You could subscribe to The Report Card on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast player. And if you like this episode, take a minute to leave a review on iTunes or Google. As always, if you have any comments, questions, or topic suggestions for future episodes, reach out to us at ed.podcast at AEI.org. And until the next time, I'm Nat Malkus.